This is Under Review, a podcast about rethinking humanities graduate education, a collaboration of the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. I'm June Key, a comparative literature PhD student at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Lauren Burrell-Cox, an English PhD student at the University of Florida. We believe that discussions of career diversity should not only consider careers beyond the university, but also think through structural problems within the university. Each episode, we speak with experts about issues surrounding prestige, labor, contingency, and diverse postdoctoral pathways. It's time to put graduate education under under review. This episode, we dive into the material conditions of teaching and research for graduate students. First, we speak with Saurabh Chatterjee, a PhD student studying 19th and 20th century Bengali visual and print culture at Columbia, about his participation in the recent graduate strikes at Columbia University. Then, we interview Dr. Nick Mitchell, Associate Professor and Graduate Director for Feminist Studies at UC Santa Cruz, about paving a path from activism to academia, his experience with the UC Santa Cruz graduate strike, why academic work isn't considered a form of labor, and how professional standards can and need to change within the academy. The past five years have seen an upsurge of graduate student-organized strikes across the nation at both public and private universities. While graduate students at public universities began unionizing in the 1960s and 70s, students at private universities were restricted from forming unions until 2016, when the National Labor Relations Board ruled that they should also be considered employees and given collective bargaining rights. Graduate students at the University of California Santa Cruz launched a Cost of Living Adjustment Strike, or COLA for short, in the fall of 2019 as a result of soaring housing prices in the coastal city of Santa Cruz. Graduate students withheld fall quarter grades in order to demand livable wages. However, negotiations between the university and the union were sidetracked by the beginning of the pandemic and transition to remote learning in spring 2020. On the opposite coast, graduate students at Columbia University recently won a new contract after a 10-week strike for better wages, childcare subsidies, dental coverage, and summer pay. We spoke with Surav before the strike. We had very basic demands. That is, uh, Columbia, the, the funding doesn't cover for our eyes. We wanted funding to cover our eyes and our teeth. We wanted summer fundings for sixth and seventh year students, uh, PhD students. That is it. And we wanted like a, uh, to complain to have a proper inquiry into sexual molestations, into sexual harassments. NYC is a famously unaffordable city to live in. And for graduate students at Columbia, it is exacerbated by a funding structure that does not pay enough during the summer months to cover the rent. The campus rent also started creating a huge problem, especially last year when we again went on strike, because there are people who live on campus and Columbia now also becomes their landlord. It's like you have to pay the whole semester's fee together, which is impossible technically. And and that is not possible over the summer because Columbia rent goes up to like almost $2,000, starts from 1500 to goes up to 2000 and even more. So from May 15th to August 15th, it is unaffordable. And Columbia was not paying. They were saying, no, we can only pay you $4,000 as a summer funding. Sarav is aware of the optics of complaining about being a student at Columbia. From the outside, it looks, wow, very wonderful. What are you crying about? You go to Columbia, you live in Manhattan, living the American dream. It's not the same once you're inside because it gets very hectic. 
while the university claims that it is paying its graduate students at the same level as peer institutions, Sarav reports. It doesn't add up. That is what I'm saying. It's, it, it doesn't add up to have a mentally, emotionally, like physically healthy, like corporeal experience to undertake a PhD out there. And big cities actually is very depressing if you are alone, if you do not have a sense of community. I used to get very depressed. I used to be almost non-functional over Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. I would sleep all throughout the day because Thursdays my class would get over. And, and New York is very, very, it gets very lonely out there. And and you cannot afford a counselor. You can go to the internal like university counselor. You have to wait in the line for three months. Everything is booked. Wow. But, but you can't do anything. I remember I had to like, yeah, I had a, a root canal. And they said like, okay, we're going to charge you $5,000. Oh, wow, $5,000 for a root canal. I'll, I'll, I'll work with my, like, I'll work with it till I go back home. Besides using his wages for his own basic necessities and research expenses, he is sending money back to his parents to support his dad. It's, it's, it's mentally battering me. I, I constantly have to think about my parents who are retired. I keep sending them money because my dad is a Parkinson's like patient. They are retired people. And I, I, I need money, not for myself, but for the people around me. One of the most pressing needs graduate students have is health insurance. And while the University of California provides graduate students with dental and vision insurance, this is not the case for all universities. Columbia did not pay for dental and vision benefits until the new contract was won. In the following conversation, Surav described a faculty member's advice about dental health. Oh, do I have some um, solutions which were given okay. to me by one of my very well-wishers. They said, like, see, it, there'll be no problems. Like if you brush your teeth twice, use some Listerine, do not eat anything sweet. It's the sweet that is causing a problem. You, you have to attack the thing that is causing a problem rather than asking the university to raise the money. And for your eyes, like, just like buy books, okay? Like see, Amazon is taking over anything. Go to the book culture, go to Strand, buy hardcovers, then solve all your problems. I said, wow, like, you talk like my mother, you know, that is so nice. It's like, no problem. You solve all the problems. No problem. What problem? These are not even problems. You are not brushing it. Oh, my God. This is, so, this is I, so dark, but so funny at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, wow. Yeah, yeah. Once, yeah. once you get to frustrated, things become very funny. You know, like, I said, wow, we can write some real satire about this. It's like, like, Wait, so, so to be clear, this was an actual discussion. Like, you actually was, heard this. This is real. You're not no, just told joking. To me. It was like told to me, like, it's like, Okay. On a hot dog stand. After the graduate students won a new contract on January 7th, 2022, we caught up with Sorav, who was doing research in London. Hello. So we have reached a tentative agreement with Columbia University after 10 weeks of striking. And this is the contract according to 6th January 2022. And these are the things we have achieved so far. Uh, the first is the full recognition of early workers, childcare and parental accommodations, compensation retroactive wages increases for academic year 2021-2022 of 6% and subsequent 3% increases for the remaining years of the contract. Third, non-discrimination and harassment, uh, neutral third-party arbitration for cases of non-discrimination and harassment after a completion of the EOAA process. One semester of transitional funding for anyone who has to transition out of an unhealthy advisor situation. This is very important. Uh, the fourth is health benefit, which is wonderful. 75% premium coverage for dental insurance for yourself and any dependents. A student health fund of $300,000. And now, here's our interview with Dr. Nick Mitchell, who stood in solidarity with striking grad students at UC Santa Cruz. I'm Nick Mitchell, uh, currently employed as an associate professor and also uh, grad director 
um, of Feminist Studies and Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz, an institution that's located on the unceded land of the Awaswa-speaking Yupi tribe, land that the uh, Amamutsin tribal band continues to struggle to steward and care for. So over the last century and a half, that land's functioned as the site of several limestone quartz mines, also grazing land for raising agriculture and space for warehousing, absorbing and managing surplus populations and this odd multi-pronged process that we call higher education. So my research is into the historical conditions that have made that process and shaped that process. Variable forms it's taken over space and time with the focus on the 19th and 20th century U.S. There's a lot of ways to approach the study of higher education. And for a lot of reasons, my approach has been one that's emphasized the non-epistemological forces that shape knowledge. There are a lot of reasons I've done so, but one of them is just to kind of counter some of the dominant stories that have been told and retold about higher education and the way that those stories have emphasized or valorized this idea that higher education is all about knowledge. And there's a, of course, there's a certain comfort in that story an optimism about knowledge that optimism thinks us and interpolates us and organizes us, even when we don't necessarily feel the most optimistic about the actual university. But I, I think that the contradictions about how we think about the university and what the university does and how the university makes us is kind of the, the big research question that I deal with. And that takes for the form of two kind of concurrent projects. First, uh, which is under contract with Duke University Press, is called Discipline and Surplus, Black Studies, Women's Studies, and the Birth of Neoliberalism. And it just argues that Looking at the emergence of Black Studies and Women's Studies offers a powerful lens on U.S. higher education in the post-war period, yeah, in the, in the second half of the 20th century. It borrows from Ruth Wilson Gilmore's framing of the emergence of uh, the California prison system, where, you know, for, for Gilmore, the prison system emerges from conditions that are not primarily caused by crime as much as the need for a political and geographic solution to a whole range of crises that didn't begin or end with crime. And both the problems and the solutions that they respond to, the crisis that they, they respond to, have a deep relationship to surplus finance capital and of state capacity that really goes to explain the emergence of the prison system. And my study kind of tries to tell the story of the moment before that, where the same mechanisms and many of the same convergence of surpluses before California started uh, embarking on a project of mass incarceration began on the project of mass education that dealt with many of the same convergence of, of surpluses. And so, yeah, the argument of that book is that Black Studies and Women's Studies offer a powerful lens on the intersection of, of surpluses in that moment and the way that surpluses gave rise to various forms of discipline in the university form and also in the state power form. The other book's just a work called The University in Theory, Essays on Institutionalized Knowledge, and that tries to historicize the idea of, of theory as one whose conditions were shaped by the post-war period. And it asks whether theory, and specifically theories of race, gender, and sexuality, are capable of actually thinking what makes them possible. So it's in that work that a lot of the essays of mine that people are most familiar with, Summertime Selves, essays on critical ethnic studies, my essay on Afro-pessimism, like th th that's where they kind of show up in revised form. And the point of that is to ask sort of whether we're still in the time of theory. I came to this question when I was putting together a feminist theory syllabus and realized how much of the stuff that reads like feminist theory to me was written before 2000. And in many ways, it was almost all of it. I wanted to figure out why that was and the sense of why it was. I came to start thinking about maybe we're in a different moment. Um, maybe maybe we're not, not in the moment of theory, but how do we name the moment 
that we're in. Though the book ends with looking at 2008 as a kind of watershed moment in what it meant to be in a university and um, how it shifted the conditions of possibility for what we call theory. So that's that's the the big arc of the research. All right. Wow, that's really great. But then outside of your, you know, academic work, we were also mm-hmm. really curious about your experience with labor advocacy and if you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So, I don't think I got involved with the university as an activist or someone who was deeply embedded in labor politics. But what put me on that trajectory was being in the university as a grad student and being in a university as a grad student in a place that had a union. And so while I was never part of the union leadership, just the fact of having some central mechanism to organize graduate students toward ends that had practical applications for our lives on a day-to-day basis and had some meaningful legitimacy to bargain on our behalves with the institution was tremendously important, even as people in the union had their own very valid critiques of the union leadership and the union apparatus, which is a whole di- different story of, of things that need, need to be explained. So, but yeah, I started graduate student in 2005 at UC Santa Cruz, same place I work now. I did my PhD in the history of consciousness department. I came there on the heels of a few years of doing HIV AIDS activism in New York City with ACT UP New York, an organization that I joined after many years years idolizing it for its um, its direct action. I became involved in ACT UP, you know, as a 21-year-old, and it was odd to be in an organization as a 21-year-old whose constituency was almost across the board, like more than twice my age. And so I, I learned a lot about a lot <laughs> in, in that, that institution. And so I, I think I got pulled, but when I moved to across the country to Santa Cruz, I think I got pulled most decisively into the world of labor activism and the world adjacent to labor activism uh, around 2008. So the financial crisis, the tuition hikes at the at the University of California, the year of faculty salary furloughs, really marked a turning point for me. And I try and be kind of self-critical about this because I'm like, is it like, is the fact that I'm narrating 2008 as like this watershed moment for theory just because it's a watershed moment for me? But I do think that like, you know, globally speaking, 2008 was a, a relatively tectonic moment. The tactical shift in militancy in a lot of the student activism, the use of occupation as a tactic system-wide throughout the, the, the University of California, uh, the deep analysis on the ground by people who were not trained in it in trying to make sense of what in the world was this world of finance and private equity that uh, had led both to the financial crisis, but also had led to, you know, so much of the, the a university budgetary decline that now, like within five years, there was a 25% reduction in the state's general education budget for higher education. So a lot of us were just trying to figure stuff out about <laughs> universities at the time. As students, as laborers, there were some really creative graduate student, un- undergraduate collaboration. And yeah, it felt like a real substantial shift about what it meant to be in a university and forced me to ask questions about what I was doing that I think have just like more or less shaped my career. Asking those questions about the university and trying to figure out ways to get answers. So being pulled into that, uh, having different forms of formal and informal organizations to engage with that, having comrades of mine really start 
an effort to take over and reshape the politics of our graduate student union in the form of academic workers for a democratic union. Uh, th that was really the, the, the moment where I, I think that my kind of more contemporary political transformation happened. And I learned a lot about organizing. Uh, I learned a lot about the differences between different levels of, of organizing, whether it's direct action or different forms of, of, of intervention effectively. And I think that led directly into toward the end of my time as a graduate student, me and a few other graduate students at UC Santa Cruz banding together with a group of really principled undergraduate students there to fight for an ethnic studies department at UC Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz was one of the two UCs without any form of ethnic studies department um, at the time. And it was in many ways, like sharply resisted by some of the faculty. But I think that we got a lot of successful momentum to the extent that, well, eventually I came back to Santa Cruz as the first hire in the ethnic studies program. Now we're verging on 150 ethnic studies majors. Um, we, when I started, there were seven. We just became a department as of July 1st, of, of this year. And so, yeah, I, I think that I learned a lot about working on the ground. I think the militancy of activism in that moment was especially important for me because I saw a lot of people, I saw a lot of graduate students who weren't afraid of confronting their professors. And that taught me something. I am a very, very much a non-confrontational person. And also, I think that, 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 that you know, was a weird enough moment because it was a it was the Tumblr moment. I got to give a shout out to Tumblr. And like, you know, I, I started writing on Tumblr and probably did some of the most meaningful writing of my life in that particular social media platform under a pseudonym and um, learn to write in that, that, that context, writing about politics, writing about stuff. Yeah, I, I think that like that was a, a, a really profoundly formative moment for me. And because it, ha it unfolded against the background of a job market that was already decimated since the early 90s, tanking even more to the extent that it has not even it is not nearly recovered to the pre 2008 levels today. It just meant that, you know, the, the people who I would have imagined would be the first in line for jobs spent half a decade not getting a tenure stream job, adjuncting, sometimes leaving, leaving the academy. The effects of the financial crisis on the job market compounded year after year after, after year when people who didn't get jobs one year were on the, on, the, on the market with all the people who were still finishing their PhDs the next year. And so any, any sense that I was involved in an enterprise that could even vaguely claim the title of meritocracy was very quickly dismissed from my sense of lived institutional reality in that period. And like for all the difficulties, for the hundred, the hundred sixty some thousand of student loan debt that I, I, I accumulated, I am really thankful that I got to go to graduate school in the moment that I did, because I think that it meant that I learned a lot on the ground because of the just practical, the practical ideology that fizzled <laughs> in the, the the wake of that that kind of of of, of crisis, and yeah, like the 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 idea that you know you get a job because you're deserving, it just doesn't it, it doesn't work <laughs> uh, yeah. in 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 that context. And so it's yeah. it's good to have the fictionality disappear. No, that's totally relatable, and it's interesting for you to say that that ideology fizzled because you know as grad students today, it's like. There is still that ideology. It continues. It's resurgent. Mm, right. Yeah. 
it's kind of still there, right? The idea that the people who are most qualified or who do the best work get the tenure track jobs and those who, right. you know, are not as academically competent don't, right? And it's, it's great that yeah. you that. Yeah, I mean, I like I think it's 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 really fascinating because there are people who should know better <laughs> at, at, at this point, but also knowing better doesn't translate. The, the, the gap between knowing and doing better um, is so wide and it can't be bridged by the same practices because like you can know better, but it's still <laughs> like, it's still miserable to be on the job market. Knowing better doesn't actually meaningfully um, reduce um, that kind of practical misery. It doesn't make adjuncting any, any, any less pre- prevalent. And so like, you know, like knowing better can only go so far and not know, like acting as if you don't know better is in some ways the condition of trying to get a job <laughs> because you have to produce the, this, this kind of, of, of fiction practically whether you believe it or not and i think repeating that belief goes a lot goes very far in the reproduction of that belief uh whether it's in individually or systemically it's really interesting too that your activism was so intertwined with you actually getting getting a job like you truly kind of forged your own career path that way and you right. weren't just going kind of the standard route, right? You created your own department with the help of your comrades. And I guess when you were talking about your career path, it just made me think about the COLA movement, the cost of living adjustment movement that spread across the UCs, but originated in UCSC. And your article on returning the chancellor's achievement university <laughs> uh-huh. was kind of passed around my office. And we were just like, oh, my God, that's amazing that somebody is doing this and Nick Mitchell is doing this. So can you just talk a little bit about, you know, the circumstances of you mm-hmm. returning that award and then it's yeah. the aftermath as well? Yeah, like none of this happens if, if students aren't, aren't on the picket line. Um, but so, I mean, at Santa Cruz, we have a grad student population that did not, was largely against the contract that its union agreed to based on the understanding that wages were not going to make it possible to live not only without rent burden, but without either real deep fundamental food insecurity and housing instability from month to month and the possibility of that mounting more and more. I think uh, grad students at Santa Cruz were very in touch with the fact that Santa Cruz, which was not always a, a university that had extensive graduate education, really aggressively expanded its undergraduate numbers while also expanding graduate education partly because graduate education meant that it could instruct the increasing numbers of undergrads more cheaply the problem with increasing your undergraduate edu- uh, enrollment numbers means that there's increasing demand on the rental market uh, which means that landlords in Santa Cruz who had been recruited to the idea of a university partly through the idea that yeah students will make it so you constantly have housing demand and so your backyard now becomes a means of 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 paying your mortgage uh independently from from uh labor and becomes a means of increasing the value of your homes um, and so, yeah, the, the increasing kind of uh, undergraduate housing demand also just made it so that rent rents were skyrocketing. And so uh, in December 2019, hundreds of graduate students began on a with, with withholding grades, basically, on the first leg of a strike that was uh, withholding grades uh, that escalated and their, their demand was for a cost of living adjustment so that they would no longer live at rent burden. So that, that would be an adjustment of 
you know, I, I think it was r- roughly almost $1,500 a month, <laughs> um, which just goes to show how little they were making in, in the first place. And so that escalated to in early February of 2020, a full labor stoppage uh, with a picket line at the base of campus. In response to the demands, our university was largely uh, stonewalled and uh, but once the picket started happening at the base of campus, suddenly our administration decided to commit $300,000 a day to invest in policing the labor strike at the, at the base of campus. Um, and there were pol- all manner of police confrontations and police violence against student activists that happened as a, as a result. Our undergraduate students of color who largely came out in support of the strike, some of them got beaten, some of them got hurt by police. Um, And as a direct consequence of how our administration decided to relate to the action. And ultimately, I think it was on, I believe it was on uh, February 14th. Yeah, Valentine's Day, that we got messages, faculty received messages, and um, the whole whole campus population received messages from then UC President Janet Napolitano and our campus executive vice chancellor, Lori Kletzer, stating that if the striking students did not submit grades by the next Friday, which I think was the 21st, then they would not be given their spring TA ships. So they'd be effectively fired. What that meant was a lot of things. It meant for international students that they would be immediately facing effectively deportation. Um, it meant a lot of people were were immediately concerned that they weren't going to be able to eat, even though they were already struggling to eat based on the wages that, that, were, uh, that, that they got from the university system. And yeah, it it meant for me that the, the students that I work with were under attack. And there was a pretty extensive and I think pretty impressive faculty solidarity effort that emerged at Santa Cruz. In feminist studies, our graduate students asked something very specific of us in terms of solidarity in the strike. They asked us to, they asked professors to participate in the full labor stoppage. They asked professors to cancel classes along with them. And I complied. Um, I was teaching a 300 student class on feminism and social justice at the time. And I had six TAs, almost all of whom were participating in the strike. And so I canceled class. I usually work, I live in Oakland and I usually work two or three days on campus a week. So I'm not always on campus. But the, the interesting thing about the strike is that it brought me to campus like five or six days a week. <laughs> so all, all, all of a sudden it like, it, it changed the, the everyday habits of my life. And, you know, one of the reasons I don't live in Santa Cruz is because it would be really hard to af- afford. Um, and so m- a couple days of those weeks, I can crash on my friend's couches. But most of the time, I'm sleeping on the floor in my office. And then, like, going, like, you know, taking a shower in the gym, driving down to the the base of campus at 7 a.m. and parking my car outside of it so that I don't cross the picket line, even though I kind of technically cross the picket line to get outside of campus and go back on. But yes, like, so I could join the, the picket as well. And so... In the ramp up to that, that the 21st, the day that everyone was going to be fired, the striking graduate workers were just like, well, we're, we're calling this doomsday and we're going to like either call the bluff or not back down. So eventually, some who, especially many of the people who were really going to have their student status challenged, uh, ended up submitting grades, but significant numbers still didn't submit grades. And so on the day before doomsday, like I was sleeping in my office and I woke up the morning of, and I, um, I was getting ready to go, go down to the picket when I just kind of glimpsed the award that I'd been given the, 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 the chancellor's award for diversity the, the, the year before. And I, I kind of realized that, okay, here, there's something I can do with the, the university's recognition of of me and so pro- probably the fastest thing i've written in my life 
um, that, that, that is made, that's gone into pub- public circulation. And you can tell because there's grammatical errors in the thing still. But yeah, I, I, I just wrote a, a statement of, of both in, in solidarity, but also that attempted to connect the dots between police violence and the policing of, of, of our labor struggle. And really showing that the use of police to solve these problems is the same logic that puts our students of color in in danger and that the, if our university wants to claim that it's able to recognize the value of diversity sending police to that protest was sending the exact opposite message. You know, I, 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 I tried to keep the, the critique as accessible as possible. Um, and yeah, like I, I, I printed it out, brought it to Kerr Hall, which is our administration hall, and gave the letter with the award to the chancellor's administrative assistant. Yeah, and then it, then it, I I kind of shared it and it got circulation. I was I was surprised, but yeah, th- I mean that's sort of what happened. I think with the strike, the with the continuation of the strike, I think there's so many what ifs that go along with that moment. We know that there were seven or eight other UC campuses that had pledged that they were going to strike in solidarity with UC Santa Cruz once they came back from spring break in the third week of March. But of course, the problem with the third week of March in 2020 was that the third week of March was one week after we went into shelter in place. And so the pandemic had this surprising but not so surprising effect of giving the administration the momentum the counter momentum it needed and also making making organizing in public difficult if not impossible at least you know until late may um of 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 that year but we didn't know we didn't know so much about the virus then. Um, and so it really, yeah, people were, were understandably terrified. So there's so many what ifs around that moment. It could have been a, a, a lot of things. And I, I, it's, it's disappointing, but also, I mean, I, I hope someone writes the speculative fiction about what happens if we don't have a global pandemic emerging at the same time as this really important movement of solidarity. Yeah, thanks. I mean, just hearing stories about faculty supporting students like that as a grad student, it's kind of rare. At the University of Florida, we're kind of experiencing a similar thing where they're building a lot of quote unquote luxury student housing that is pricing out grad students from being Mm -hmm. able to even afford to live in the city at all. And people in my program have an extremely low stipend to where they can't even afford to move. And a lot of times we've been told by people in our program administrators just, oh, well, you should just get a roommate. That's how it gets solved. Yeah. So not, not very helpful advice. So Hearing stories of faculty actually supporting the students in a very like practical, tangible way is nice to hear. So we were also curious about in your article, Summertime Selves, you wrote about the wage theft you experienced as a mm-hmm. grad student. Yeah. And would you mind talking about it to the level that you're comfortable about it? Because I do think that academic hazing kind of like that is way more prevalent than what people realize or are willing, you know, talk about. I myself have experienced different things, not on that level. I had an incident happen and it was really terrifying to even go talk to the department about Mm. that it happened. And it wasn't really so much for me, but I didn't want it to happen to someone else. And I felt like I had to speak up so that it wouldn't happen to someone else. Yeah. We'd love to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ways that that this kind of abuse is, is, endemic to, to the institution, but also it's, it's, if, if it's happening and you recognize that it's happening, there is a way, well, you're like, I'm in, I'm in the academy, <laughs> like, you know, I, like I'm, I'm privileged. Right. So like, like this is happening, but like, it's, is there even 
a leg for me to stand on in 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 saying any anything about it. And I also think that that's part of why it happens, <laughs> and that's part of what why it continues. So, just for for background, like I. I had this experience where I started working for a professor who was not uh, a professor at UC Santa Cruz, who was giving a paper that was had some relevance uh, to Santa Cruz, and that's how we got paired up. It was a fine relationship. We worked together, like basically on, I think for about six months in the in the ramp up to her giving this paper, which she did. Um, she liked the work that I'd done for her, and she wanted to keep me on in working for her. That's what she told me. Um, and so, basically, what she did was because she had research funds at her institution and she was also about to leave that institution she had she had to either use the research funds or lose them so rather than lose them she basically elected to pay me in advance for the work that i agreed that i was going to do for her but so i i got like a lump sum of money in advance and not so much of a blueprint about when the work was supposed to be done. And in a rather intense way, we talked maybe a few times, uh, a few, two or three times after I got paid initially. I did a little, little bit of work for her, but she was mostly out of touch. Got touch got in touch with me right before the summer started uh, with an email saying there's an urgent need for the the uh, the money that I gave to you. Uh, please return it. And for me, I'm like, I don't know if you know what money means to a grad student, but what that money really meant was that it it, it wasn't like I didn't bank it. It went to rent. <laughs> it went to food. Um, it went to gas money. So that, like that money was gone. Once I told her that, she was very upset, and she just made my working conditions hell. And I hadn't expected that I was going to have to spend the summer working for her on her projects, but I effectively did. And that that really that included a really erratic work schedule, hostility. She'd schedule meetings, then I'd call her. She'd be at the grocery store and like yell at me to just call, call her back in a couple hours. Yeah. And so like any autonomous control of, of my time was lost. And all in all, like I wasn't even working that much in terms of hours because the, the, the stuff that she was doing was more just a waste of my time rather than uh, working time. And by the fall, like I'd had enough of it and tried to push back. And she said that, okay, well, you know, I like, you don't have to do this work, just pay me, which I, I again, tried to refuse and was kind of hoping that if I waited it out, <laughs> that she'd maybe just forget about it, kind of, or she, she'd let it go. She didn't. So I eventually had to uh, come the next January, take out a student loan, cut a nice check and send it to her new address where she was, she was, she had a very prestigious fellowship. Like, I'm like, how, how much did I reveal? She had a very prestigious fellowship named after someone who is now also known to be a very high profile abuser. And uh, yeah, so I, I sent it to her, her new, her new address and there, there it goes. And so, yeah, like, I mean, it, it, like, I didn't know, it just felt weird. <laughs> um, it felt weird. I didn't really understand what, what, what had happened. It just felt like bad. And so I talked to people about it. I talked to friends and a, a lot, I talked to some, I talked to mentors, I talked to my advisor. Um, and yeah, everyone was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's terrible. What was profound to me was that it took talking to a friend of mine who was a labor organizer uh, about this to actually have it described as wage theft, which is a very quotidian occurrence. 
<laughs> yeah, I think what was what was most odd about it was just the kind of time period it unfolded over. But yeah, yeah, mostly wage theft, wage theft. And so, yeah, it's like everyday practices that many people experience in the workplace. My difficulty in grasping cognitively what what was going on partly had to do with the the institutional structure whereby academic stuff exceptionalizes itself. I'm a grad student. Like I'm going to go into the like a, this kind of prestigious profession. Like wage theft doesn't make sense. It's something that that happens to me. Only if you are able to have a prism that understands my relationship with that professor as a relationship of some form of class struggle does it actually start to get illuminated. And so I, I, that taught me a lot about how to think about the kind of professor-advisee relationship. Yeah, you um, talk a lot about that in the beginning of your piece, right? That this relationship, the faculty-student relationship gets privatized. And so it's not seen as a working or an employer-employee relationship anymore. And I feel like that often lends itself to a lot of exploitation, right? Whether it be yeah. kind of bullying or sexual harassment or, you know, with your experience with wage theft and even worse, like how do you think that, you know, we can kind of de-exceptionalize, you know, the the grad school environment as a working environment? Yeah. I, I, so this is really like, it, it, it's a question that's in the heart of my work, partly because I think we are in an institution that emerged as an actual large scale public institution in a moment where there was an implicit exchange of education for some form of upward class mobility for millions of mostly white, mostly male, working and lower middle class people. To the extent where education itself was not exactly a wage, but it took the form of an investment that could be seen as promising a trajectory toward future wages. That is not the nature of the institution that we're in. And because of it, the idea of work that sits at the heart of the institution is probably something that needs to be rethought. And so for me, one of the things that that really necessitates is asking that question, like, what is the nature of study as work, as work and in relation to work? And so much of the, 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 the prestige of the institution, so much of the prestige of the degree has to do with the, the idea that one is self-sacrificing, one is future investing, and that's what makes it noble. You're giving up time that you could be waged in the present in, in order to distinguish yourself toward a, a stable society benefiting profession for the future. But that the cost of that is that we lose a grasp on what you do in school as work. And so I think that there's a kind of a large scale question there just about what does it mean to move into uh, an understanding of what students do as work um, and not just change the terminology, but change its institutional standing, change what students are able to and do expect in relation to that work and change how it's it's recognized and uh, how, how, how it, it's organized through the, the various functions of the institution, how much work we are able to demand of ourselves and of others. And that, I, th I think, is, for me, a pretty urgent question that is 
also entirely reasonable to be asking about how how to reshape universities because at this point the the theory of of professionalization that operated to the benefit of certain classes of people for a, a certain circumscribed period is has revealed itself for what it was already in many ways, which is an injunction to extraction. Education has revealed itself as an inducement to work wagelessly for years of your life. As as the job market requires more and more years of education in order to enter into it without the without the risk of you know, major either non-upward mobility or like for some people, like serious downward mobility, the amount of time you have to spend in school as a student, as an unwaged worker has increased. Yeah, like increased in many cases by four or five years, um, like on average. And so if we just think about it that way, like if we think about like what is the, the the relationship of education to work, that's one framework to route it through. But it's not the like it, 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 it's not the only one. And I think you know I, I wouldn't want to leave untouched the the kinds of problems that I'm talking about in summertime selves about how educational labor gets privatized, how the advisor-advisee relationship get, gets privatized. And I use that that kind of quote from Kathy Weeks, which is about analogizing the labor relation to the marital relation, in that it, it's seen as this very unique, singular relationship, which is supposed to express the truth of the self rather than express the organization and logic of a social institution. And I think in academic work, this is like, in academic work, I also like in in various other forms of labor, especially feminized professions, um, like this, this is so much the case that the the extractive injunction, like is so naturalized that not only do conditions of, of working unwaged apply to so many masses of people, but also the idea that my my relationship to this enterprise requires sacrifice and is normed by the idea of sacrifice that it really normalizes abusive conditions that are just that are built into the relationship of the worker to the institution. When that relationship and dynamic becomes personalized into kind of uh, intergenerational like transmission of professional norms and practices, it becomes even more sharply articulated, especially in the humanities and the quantitative social sciences, where we have this kind of deeply seated culture that fetishizes brilliance, where the idea is like, if you are brilliant, well, like, if you are brilliant, you can't be expected to maintain caring, worldly attachments, because the condition of your brilliance is you actually exiting the world of caring attachments so as to know them better. And so though people who perform their detachment from that world actually oftentimes can gain the appearance of uh, a kind of brilliance that is normalized. And yet, like, departing from from caring reproductive attachments also really seems to not surprisingly have a deep possibility of abuse written into that very structure and performance. And so like just the the basic idioms and and professional imaginations uh really feed into structures that uh, that 
no one can be surprised when they become abusive. I wouldn't want to, I don't think I, I, I would essentialize them as abusive, but like they certainly have written into them the structures and norms that make abuse very much possible. So with that, do you have any ways that you think graduate education in the humanities should be reformed, like practical things? And then also any Mm -hmm. advice that you have for graduate students navigating this world right now? Well, let me start here. There's a there's a cottage industry that's both for profit and nonprofit in academic advice. And it, it encourages graduate students and casualized academic laborers and postdocs and junior faculty to internalize this idea that gathering ye tiny nuggets of wisdom will add up to some form of comparative advantage in the profession or on the job market. And it's rarely framed as comparative advantage or competition. It's usually framed as self-making or profession and I, or professionalization. And I I think that I have started to really, really get upset at my colleagues in like for, for participating in in this stuff. And like, this isn't like, I don't mean to like call out Karen Kelsky or any, anything. And I think like, you know, Karen Kelsky does important work and um, it's structurally necessary work, but I do think some, at some point we do have to think, like, what are we doing? Like, what are we, like, what does the, what's the end game? What does this add up to? What does, what we're calling professionalization actually, where, where does it go? Generation, like people before me, that you could get a job without having a published article. <laughs> the inflated publication expectations for everyone who is going through graduate school right now are absolutely absurd. They're not making better knowledge. They are making people who are market obsessed and for like entirely understandable structural reasons. And so we don't have to do this. <laughs> like in universities where there are academic senates, they can actually set standards and norms and and suggestions for what they imagine is a reasonable publication expectation for, for people who are applying for an assistant professor job, as well as other expectations. They, they can push back to against other institutions that have these absurd, like embarrassingly absurd quantitative standards about what constitutes output that they they have signed up to uh, enforce as a condition of getting into some group like the uh, Association of American Universities. These standards are made by humans. This culture is made by humans. It does not need to exist. It should not exist. It's not like, even if we think about a university as this in this epistemocentric mode, as like a a knowledge-based institution, this isn't helping. And so I, I think that like, generally speaking, not encouraging graduate students to adopt a mode of professionalization that is lar- that that we will not even tell them is like about competing with each other in ways that is harming each other <laughs> and is yeah is is not making the profession into something that is going to be sustainable or livable for uh, the next generation of, of grad students. Like these are things that can change. Um, these are cha- things that can, that can change. They don't even require the kinds of basic structural redistribution that I think needs that needs to happen to make bigger changes in the academy. There, there are norms and standards that are human made that are enforced uh, by certain kinds of institutional arrangements that don't need to be. Um, so I think that, that that's one thing. I also think that just uh, the, the stuff about labor before respecting yourself as a worker also means that you are better in a position to respect your students as workers. That I think is just uh, like a, a, a first step. Those norms of those those I, the idealized self sacrifice. 
oftentimes takes the form of have of creating an idealized personhood who has no good work boundaries. <laughs> um, and yeah, like then when you get an email from your advisor at 4 a.m. asking you about something, like they are telling, they are communicating to you what your labor, what your future labor environment is going to expect. <laughs> and yeah, like, I, I think we model these things um, in our practices. And so like, I think that there's not a ton that can be done in, 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 at an individual level. But one thing I learned from the COLA strike was that there... <laughs> Uh, well, one thing I learned, learned from the Cola strike is that post-structuralists live are are often living in a world where politics doesn't exist. Surprisingly, um, be, because post-structuralists oftentimes imagine that, that they are like you know they are the theoretical that is most engaged in in, in the political. But practically speaking, and I I, I really do define academics politics by practicality. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> How do you show up? That that like that is the basic stuff of politics. Like, you know, there there's just way too many marxists who are petty petty counterinsurgents out there to confuse the content of of someone's intellectual profile with the 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 political content that 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 they're, they're engaged in. And so, yeah, I think that like redefining what it means to be an intellectual with politics is another thing. For me, the like for me, I it's not I don't think that I have great politics. I think that I set a standard for myself where the measure of my politics was going to be showing up consistently. And I I set that standard and I tried as best I could to hit the target and hit the target consistently so that graduate students knew if there was going to be an event that they could ask me to show up and show up in a certain way and that I would be there. That, I think, is, I don't know. I, I've read too much attachment theory and, like, yeah, I'm like, am really stressing out about how graduate students actually get created in, in, in this world. But, like, just the basic consistency in, in some actions really go a long way in in building meaningful relationships and i think i tr i'm able to trust that at least to a certain extent my students can push back um and that that they're that they, they can ask me and cr critique things that, that that i i have done and that they they understand that my understanding of my job is I am structural. <laughs> I am part of this structure. I'm not just like an individual. When you have accumulated a certain kind of institutional status, you are part of the structure. And that doesn't just mean that you are solely unilaterally part of this apparatus of exploitation and oppression. It means you're part of the structure, which means there are capacities that come with it. So if you kind of just don't take the critique as personally and try try and reimagine yourself a little bit impersonally as part of the structure, I think that you, you, you have a little, there can be a little bit more give in terms of what is available for you to do. One of the things that we saw that we did in my last year as graduate director, and I was really like supported uh, extensively um, in this by our departmental manager, uh, Taylor Ainsley, uh, was just look for pockets of funds that were available. And instead of like saying, here's a fellowship call, apply for funding, let's just give if for every graduate student who doesn't have a full year of funding uh, or who doesn't have the same amount of funding that you would have as a fellowship, just freaking give it to them. It's stimulus. Just think of it as stimulus. It's not going to get used. The university is going to take it back at the end of the year. Give it to them. Have it show up in the thing and don't ask for labor in, 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 like in, in response. You can do this. It's just possible. And so I, I think that but if, if you're not thinking yourself as structure, or if you're thinking yourself as the guardian of meritocracy, then you're not going to get there. 
Yeah, I, I love that policy. That's an amazing, you know, a policy to recommend to other administrators as well. Because you're right, like all this funding is always tied to prestige and to an application and to who has the most academic merit. It is really radical to think that, you know, no, I'm not going to be, you know, the person guarding all this money for, you know, the, the people who are the most worthy. I'm just going to give it out because everybody deserves, you know, to like have a living wage while writing their dissertations. So I guess we are kind of at the end of our time, but is there anything else you would like to add just to kind of close out the interview? Not really. I mean, I, I just, I'm appreciated. I'm appreciative of the conversation. Um, I think it's a, a hard conversation to have. And yeah, I, like I do want, want to, and thank you for, for feeding back to me that it's useful to hear about the, the part about like the ideology fizzling. <laughs> like, because I just want to underscore, like I got a job in a moment where almost all of my friends didn't and many of them still haven't and if you relate to the enterprise in that way where like you get your job you're not getting it because you're exceptional like this is a freaking lottery or if you're exceptional like you have to actually be really worried about your exceptionality because you found a way to make it work in a system that is spitting out so many other people that are your comrades and that like whom you respect like you have to have some sort of antagonistic relationship to whatever you you call success and so yeah i think i think that that's that's that that was really a a profound uh realization and i i, I feel fortunate for in, in spite of the the suffering that that led, led to that moment to actually have it and to have been able to process it in a way that really informed how I, I, I do my job now. This podcast was written, produced, and hosted by Lauren Burrell-Cox and June Key, with support from the University of California Humanities Research Institute and the University of Florida Center for the Humanities and the Public Sphere. The cover art was designed by Kathleen Martin and Amy Owen at UF Class Communications. Special thanks to Barbara Mennell, Kelly A. Brown, and David Theo Goldberg for their support and guidance.